If you have a Bible, you can open to Jonah chapter 2. And that text is also printed in the bulletin on the next page. Uh, Last week, um, in case you missed it, uh, we looked at chapter 1, which is taken uh, one week at a time, uh, one chapter per week. Uh, So four weeks through the book of Jonah. Uh, So last week in chapter 1, God commissioned Jonah to go to Nineveh, the city of his enemies, to preach against it. God says to preach against it because their evil, evil has come up before God. Uh, Jonah refused. He tried to run away from God, not only from his mission, but from God himself, from the presence of the Lord. That's em- emphasized there. Uh, Jonah was angry with God. And uh, we find out uh, later in the book, in chapter 4, actually, sort of the key to understanding the book of Jonah, uh, we find out he was angry with God because he suspected that God would use this opportunity of him going to preach, even a preach to preach against the Ninevites for their sin, uh, he would use that op- opportunity to forgive and spare his enemies, uh, the Ninevites. And in his self-righteousness, Jonah uh, couldn't stand that idea. It drove him mad, and he tried to escape from God, which he should have known was impossible. Uh, but God wouldn't let Jonah get away from him. Uh, God was going to teach Jonah a lesson. And that usually sounds threatening to us. I'm going to teach you a lesson. Come over here. <laughs> you know, um, there's a real sense in which this lesson is absolutely threatening. <laughs> that God teaches Jonah. Uh, but it's a lesson about God's grace. It's a lesson about God's mercy. It's a good thing that God is teaching him and us this lesson. Uh, in his good mercy, God hunts Jonah down, hurls a hurricane at him while he's on a ship at sea. Uh, Jonah's thrown overboard, and as he's sinking down into the dark waves, he's swallowed by this mysterious sea creature uh, that God um, has prepared for this very purpose. And... Uh, <clears throat> God brings Jonah into the most perilous, terrifying circumstances of his life in that moment, right? It's exactly what we would expect if God were going to come to Jonah in judgment, this kind of terrifying, perilous circumstances. We'd expect this if, if uh, this is what we're expecting, if God is coming to Jonah in judgment, but actually he's pursuing Jonah with his mercy. It's a mercy that implies judgment. Uh, It's a mercy that often works through judgment. It's a mercy that's often misinterpreted by us as being judgment because it feels like judgment. But it's mercy. It's grace. It's salvation. That can be really confusing to us. Um, God often brings things into our lives that we interpret as punishment. That we interpret as he's, you know, we've lost his favor and he's against us and he's condemning us and he's judging us. Uh, Things that we believe are signs that testify that God is against us. But really, he's teaching us a lesson about his grace every single time, and we need to be told that. And we need to remember that, and we need to believe that. God taught Jonah this lesson, and apparently Jonah knew that he needed to pass this lesson along to people like us. So that's what we get here. Uh, So uh, let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, your word is true and good. And it teaches us most clearly about who you are and what you're like. So we pray that you would help us to hear your word with faith and to be changed by it in our relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I'm going to start in the last verse of chapter 1. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. 
Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A lot of people get hung up on the fish, uh, you know, I mean, especially the gross part of the end. He's vomited out on the dry land. What state he's in at that point, who knows. Uh, But people get hung up on the fish, because it's crazy. But... Let me tell you, there are a lot crazier things going on in the Bible than this fish. I think we'll talk about some of them this morning. Uh, So Jonah, here, is cast into the middle of the raging sea. Surely he thought this was the end of his story. But now this mysterious, miraculous fish comes and is his salvation, actually. You'd think being swallowed by a sea creature is anything but salvation. Uh, But now, this is his salvation. He's brought to a place where he's contemplating God's mercy and his salvation. Jonah is not exactly in a peaceful, relaxing position. Who knows how cramped it is inside? Uh, Definitely know it's probably a stressful place to be in. But he has been brought to this place so that he can reflect there on God's actions in his life. And that's what he's doing. In fact, he can do nothing else. God has brought him to a place where he has to face reality. It's a place where Jonah has to deal with God. This is a meeting place with God inside the belly of the fish. And as Jonah prays, he's meeting with God, he's praying, he's reflecting. He's able to interpret this whole fish-swallowing business as God's salvation of him. God's salvation from a self-destructive death that he had chosen through his own rebellion against God. It's his salvation from God's own righteous judgment, actually. And Jonah has to reflect on that. Whether he wanted to or not, he he can't help it now. So don't you avoid that same reflection. You should reflect on things like this, too. Uh, Don't run from God. Don't deny reality. Don't distract yourself into oblivion. We live in a hectic, tumultuous world. A lot of it is by choice, actually. By personal choice that we're so busy and our lives are so hectic and tumultuous. So maybe by choice you need to slow down. You need to think and meditate and pray. Deliberately, in an informed way, reflect on who God is, what he's doing in your life, meet with him in prayer, and assess your life in light of his truth. And the only way you can do that is to reflect on what he has said. That's his truth. It's the truth that's been revealed to us in the scriptures. That's what Jonah had to rely on when he was here in the belly of the fish, right? It's scriptures that he memorized. He's certainly not reading them off of parchment in the belly of the fish. Uh, 
It's the scriptures that have been written beforehand for his instruction that he has taken to heart. He knew them well. His prayer here is full of language from the Psalms. <clears throat> and when he came up against this trauma, then he fell back. He fell back onto God's word. In this hurricane, he's cast into the sea with no land in sight. He's a dead man. He knows it. He knows he deserves it. And he knows that God is the one who's brought him to this point. Right? And because he knows the scriptures, he knows that God did it ultimately because he's a God of mercy. If he didn't know the scriptures and was just going to go on superstition, he was just going to go on instinct, his gut, what his gut tells him about the, the, the place that he's in right now, he would only be able to interpret his circumstances as God's anger toward him. If he didn't know the scriptures, the, place, the dark place he found himself in, he could only interpret as, as God's anger to him. <clears throat> but he prays to the God who has traumatized him, thanking him for his salvation. It, it's hard to make sense of unless you sort of put it in the context of all the scriptures. The first part of his prayer here is a reference to uh, the prayer that he probably made when he was sinking down when he was in the water before the fish, right? Um, so verses 1 and 2, uh, he prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. The belly of Sheol, right? It's the, the place of the dead that he was going down to, that he talks about in this prayer. His first prayer is remembering God's mercy to him in answering his previous prayer. And how do you answer that previous prayer? By sending the fish right, to swallow him. So the word fish... Um, I, I wish it was more specific than it is. You know, what kind of fish this is? That's interesting. It's speculative, whatever. But it's, uh, it's just talking about some large sea creature. It's pretty nebulous, actually. Jonah probably doesn't know exactly what it is since his only experience of it is from the inside. Uh, he probably didn't see it, really, from the outside. Uh, doesn't know what it is. Anyway, his prayer uh, from the belly of this fish continues to be full of aquatic language. Aquatic language. It's language of tumultuous waters, its language of drowning, of going down to death in the deep, which is, of course, entirely appropriate considering his literal physical experience, right? But it's more than just describing his literal physical experience. It's language that is, he's using to describe his spiritual state. He's using to, to describe his relationship with God. And that's what this is about. The prophet is being called to confess his sins and repent and return to Yahweh to serve him and actually go on the mission that God gave him. So, um, so in verse 3, it says, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. He's in this predicament, ultimately, because of God, right? Jonah's, in, in some sense, he's getting what he deserves in this watery death. Uh, but in a more ultimate sense, it's God's mercy to him, and not only to Jonah, but also to us. Jonah knows that this doom has fallen on him because of God, because God is chasing him down in his mercy. As we talked about last week, mercy is the thing that he couldn't stand, because mercy implies judgment. Right? If God comes to us saying, I forgive you, when somebody comes to you and says, I forgive you, <laughs> and you didn't know you needed to be forgiven of anything, uh, we get indignant. We say, I don't need to be forgiven. What are you implying? I've done something wrong, or there's something wrong with me, right? His mercy, God's mercy implies that a judgment stands against you. 
that a, that a judgment stands against us. That's what his mercy offered to us means. And the way that God pursues you to convince you that he is merciful, to convince you that he is gracious, is me, it, it's easily misinterpreted uh, as being only judgment, right? Somehow, Jonah knew that his watery ordeal was only judgment. Uh, it was not only judgment. It was, um, yeah, it was judgment, but not only judgment. And here's what I think is the strangest part of this psalm prayer that he, he prays. It's crazier than the fact that he's praying it from the belly of a big fish. Actually, it's one of these things that we find in the scripture that's, that's crazier than this big fish thing. In verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So Jonah has a pretty high view of God's holiness, and he's starting to come to grips with his own sinfulness. And he knows that there's no escaping God. He knows that uh, he absolutely deserves God's wrath, his rejection. He's being driven away in some sense. And he acknowledges, yeah, he acknowledges that God is driven away. And he also says, I shall yet again look upon your holy temple. What right does he have to say that? How does that make any sense at all? If God is driving him away, how does he claim to know that he'll someday look upon God's holy temple? That means sort of return into God's presence and be welcome there again. How does he know that? What right does he have to say that? He says, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. Your waves passed over me. I'm driven from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. I know you've got every reason to be angry with me. Your anger is absolutely overwhelming like the raging seas. It's much more than I can bear up under. I am drowning. Nevertheless, I will be with you in your presence among your people. How can he say that? He's the bad guy. He has no right to say that. He can say it because he knows in spite of being the bad guy. Taking into full account that he's the bad guy. In spite of it. In spite of what he deserves, he knows who God has revealed himself to be. He says it later in chapter 4. We looked at it last week. We talked about it already this morning, actually. It's a quote from Exodus 34. When God revealed himself to Moses and said that he is a God merciful and gracious. This is who he is at the root of his nature and his character. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands or to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So you see the same thing in that passage. It's this apparent contradiction that we have, right? Between the righteous anger of God on the one hand, driving Jonah away, he'll by no means clear the guilty. And on the other hand, it's his mercy, his grace, his faithfulness, his forgiveness, his steadfast love. Jonah knew about this. Uh, he quotes it later. He said, he's been thinking about it during this whole ordeal. Right? He might not have understood how this all worked together, but he was banking on God's mercy in this prayer. And he does so in a specific way as he's referencing the holy temple. I shall again look upon your holy temple. I mean, talk about a confusing place. A lot of us, you know, if we were tourists and this place was available to us and we want to go see it, it would be this grand, magnificent thing. But, but when you're seeing it in its daily operations, it's a different thing, right? What kind of place, what, what's the first thing you think when you see God's temple in the Old Testament? Yeah, you see, big, majestic, awe-inspiring, this place is magnificent, it's tremendous. Then you get closer and you'd probably start to be afraid, actually. What's that smell? 
Is that blood? Are those entrails? What's on fire over there? Oh, the sound of the, the bulls and the goats being slaughtered, their screams. That's, this is terrible. This is a terrible place. That's judgment happening to those animals. That's what we deserve for our sin, for our rebellion against God. But in the temple, that's what we deserve being taken out on a substitute, not being taken out on us. And then you think of the whole point of the whole thing, what the temple is a picture of. It's meant to communicate to us that in the heart of this this awful, tremendous place, in the heart of it, in the inmost place, the most holy of holies, is the presence of God that through that thick curtain where only one priest can go on behalf of the people, where the perfect law of God, the judgments of God are written in stone and kept inside the Ark of the Covenant as a constant reminder of God's faithfulness to keep his word right there at the heart of it all is the mercy seat. That's what it's called, the mercy seat. It's the throne of judgment and on top of it, like a cherry on top of it is the mercy seat. It's the place where God meets people, not to destroy us, but, out of, but, but to have fellowship out of his grace. You might interpret the temple as a place of only judgment, but you'd be wrong to do that. The whole point of it is forgiveness, it's reconciliation, it's communion with God. That's the point of the temple, this terrible place of judgment. It's a place, ultimately, of God's gracious love. But you have to be shown that, and you have to remember that. Or else, overwhelmingly, you will only think of God's judgment. You have to hold on to the grace part. You have to hold on to the mercy part. And that's what Jonah was clinging to here. He was, in a sense, experiencing God's judgment, but not only judgment. He knew, ultimately, that God was doing all of this to bring him to himself in mercy. And he trusted that as he fell back on Uh, He he trusted that and fell back on it. He banked on God's mercy. So verses 5 through 7. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. The bars of the gates of Sheol, the gates of Hades, the gates of death and hell closed upon me forever. There's a sense of finality. And some commentators suggest that maybe, maybe Jonah actually died. Uh, that's something the Bible records several times, that kind of thing. People dying and God bringing them back from the dead. That's some more of that stuff that's crazier than this whole fish monster thing. But whether Jonah was actually dead or whether it was just a near-death experience that he's describing with uh, exaggerated terms here, it's, it's a picture of his death. It's a picture. He was on the brink. Death filled his vision. This was all he could see. Yet, even though the bars closed upon me forever, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. So overwhelmed by what could easily be interpreted as only God's judgment, he remembered that God is a God of grace. He remembered God's grace. He was justified in doing that because that's exactly who God has revealed himself to be. 
Jonah did not have the right to believe that God would save him because of who he is. He didn't have the right to think, I'm the good guy, therefore God loves me. But he was justified. He did have the right to believe that God would save him because of who God is, because of what God has said. And if that was true for Jonah, how much more true is it for us? Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews starts out um, this way. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus Christ is he's the exact imprint of God's nature. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. He's not anything unlike Jesus. Jesus Christ has revealed God to us in a way that never was done before because Jesus is God. He's God the Son, God come in the flesh to dwell among us, to be with us, so that we could know God. And Jesus told us that God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Right? His coming was still easy for us to misinterpret as God's judgment. A lot of people felt judged by Jesus. A lot of people feel judged by Jesus. Because he comes forgiving sins. And we hate that. We hate what it implies. We'd rather not believe we needed that. Because, again, mercy implies judgment. But at the end of the day, it's mercy. And, and what a terrible mercy we see in Jesus Christ. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was rejected. He was judged in our place so that we could be forgiven, so we could receive God's mercy. Jonah's cry was nothing compared to Jesus' cry of dereliction, his his cry of abandonment. Jonah cried out, you have driven me away. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured not just a near-death experience, but the pit of death itself. He went down to the land where the bars were closed upon him. And he went there for you. Crazier than Jonah in the belly of the fish is Jesus in the belly of Sheol, the God-man in the belly of Sheol. He went there to seek and save the lost, to find us, to meet with us, and to be with us. In the very place where we thought we should abandon all hope. Abandon all hope, you who enter here. That's what we thought. And now, because Jesus has gone ahead of us into the grave, the place where we thought it meant God had forsaken us. Surely the grave, the silence, the emptiness of the grave, is proof that God judges us and abandons us and forsakes us. Now, because of Jesus, it's become a meeting place. It's become a meeting place for, it's a place for God's presence. The place of final judgment has become a place of God's mercy and a place for his salvation. The bars closed upon Jesus in the land of the dead, but the gates couldn't hold him. He rose from the dead, and he did that for you too. Again, crazier than a big fish is The resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's the biggest, craziest thing that there is in the Bible. It's the biggest, craziest thing that God wants you to believe. The resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Yes, God meets us in Sheol, in the grave, in the darkest places, which in itself, when he meets us there, it utterly transforms those places into the meeting places of his mercy and his love. But even better, because he is absolutely with us and for us in Jesus Christ, he doesn't leave us in those places. The grave is not your end. Jonah was vomited back out onto dry land. Jesus came back from the place of no return. And because he is raised from the dead, we also will be raised to glory with him. Now, because of Jesus, we can know that God's throne of judgment is a throne of grace. We can know that. It's a throne of mercy, a mercy seat that we can boldly approach. Now you are absolutely justified in telling, <clears throat> telling yourself that the difficult circumstances of your life, they're not God's judgment of you. They're not God ultimately driving you away, rejecting you. They're not God forsaking you. You're absolutely justified in believing. And God wants you to remember this, and that's why he's included it so many times in the scriptures. He insists that you remember that even the most difficult circumstances of your life are God's mercy to you. Maybe they're a severe mercy, we'd call them that. But there's mercy because God tells you that you can believe that. You're justified in telling yourself that. He tells you that in Jesus. He's teaching you a lesson about his grace in the book of Jonah. And the ultimate proof of it is in the one who's greater than Jonah. That's Jesus. God didn't spare his own son for you. He freely gave him for you because God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. This is Romans 8 type of stuff. Um, not even the righteous judgments of a holy God can separate you from the love of God. He gave his son to suffer those judgments for you as your substitute so that you can be forgiven, so you can know his love. He's the only God who does anything like that. If you turn to other gods, as Jonah says, um, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Well, if you want steadfast love, it's only found in the one true living God. He's the only one who gives you the complete assurance that he loves you no matter what. Salvation belongs to the Lord, to the Lord alone, to Yahweh. To save and love people who don't deserve it, that's his idea. That's nobody else's idea. Start to finish, that idea of salvation belongs to the Lord. The work to accomplish this salvation in Christ is his work, start to finish. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He defines salvation. He tells you what it is, what it means. He does whatever he wants in order to orchestrate it, to deliver it for you. So if you want that kind of love, this kind of salvation, this kind of mercy that is absolutely always true for you, no matter what else you might, you know, how else you might interpret your circumstances, you'll only find it in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because salvation belongs to him. So uh, your grasp, my grasp, our, our grasps together on this, uh, this kind of grace is weak. Our grasp, our handle on God's grace is weak. We'll never fully get it. It'll never be perfect in this life. The beauty of this book of Jonah is that he gets it and he doesn't get it. It's beautiful. I don't think it's ultimately a tragic beauty. I think it's a comedic beauty that is really reassuring. People who truly know the Lord, people who truly love his mercy, also sometimes hate him for his mercy also sometimes fail to respond well to his mercy. 
like Jonah. But our grasp on his mercy is not as important as his mercy itself. And in his mercy, he will bring his people back to himself. Jonah praises God for his salvation here. And he goes to Nineveh. And he demonstrates clearly that that grace hasn't changed him thoroughly yet. (laughs) The worst is yet to come, in a sense, for him. You can get it right now, in this moment, in this room, and then go home and blow it and yell at your kids and cheat on your taxes and lie about a business deal and run away from the mission of witness that God has given you. You could even get angry with God. You can get it here and then, and then not get it later. Jonah shows us that that's just what we're like. We get it, and at the same time, we don't get it. By God's grace, you can know that doesn't mean you're out. That doesn't mean you're out. That's just you being simultaneously justified and a sinner, which has been something of a Christian slogan for centuries. That's nothing new. That's what we're like. That's the Christian story, period. We're like Jonah. We always need grace. There's no getting away from it. Sometimes we like that. Sometimes we don't. That's why you've got to tell your heart every day, all day, that salvation belongs to the Lord, that he is merciful, and he loves you. And that's why you need to come to church. That's why we need each other to say salvation belongs to the Lord. He is merciful. He loves you. That's the biggest thing the elders here want you to know, the things that drives all our prayers for you, our ministry among you, is that God's grace is more than sufficient for you in Jesus Christ. It can be hard to believe it. So we've got to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. We preach the gospel to each other to help each other. It's got to be an active thing, a deliberate thing, this remembering God's grace. So uh, Martin Luther puts it well. He said, um, Most necessary is it that we know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. (laughs) If you're going to look at, at what God is doing in your life, and not interpret it as judgment, but interpret it instead as his saving grace and learn to see the dark places as places where you can meet God and know him in Christ. If you're going to do that, then you're going to have to beat this gospel into your head continually. And we can help each other with that. Let's do that together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to rethink everything in light of the gospel. You sent your beloved son to live, die, and rise again, and to bring many children into glory along with him. His life, death, and resurrection mean our salvation. Help us to trust, then, that we meet with you in all kinds of places in life, even in death and in resurrection. If death itself didn't cause you to abandon us, then you've shown once and for all that you will never leave us or forsake us. And you've given us every good reason to believe that Wherever we are and whatever we face, we face it with you. We face it as your people. We face it with hope. And our faith is weak, but your mercy is not weak. So we give you thanks for your mercy and for your salvation. It belongs to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.